X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, January 25th. Today, back in the day, January 25th, 1958, Portland Traction Services halted passenger services for their first streetcar that ran between Portland and Oregon City. For the majority of the past decade, the company had endured several legal battles as the community fought to prevent streetcar service from ending. The company argued the railway got more profit from freight than from passengers, saying that too many passengers were riding cars. But the public said that wasn't right. The company had intentionally discouraged passengers from using the service. The legal battle over the issue didn't end until four years after the service stopped when the Oregon Supreme Court ruled in favor of Portland Traction Services. Fortunately, I suppose these days, publicly funded TriMet can take you from Portland to Oregon City or vice versa. Today, back in the day, January 25th, 1972, Shirley Chisholm started her historic campaign for the United States president. Chisholm was the first black woman elected to Congress in 1968, representing New York's 12th district. She ran saying she was a representative of the people. Here's her quote. I'm not a candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I'm not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I'm a woman and equally proud of that. I'm the candidate of the people. And my presence before you symbolizes a new era in American political history. Her campaign spent only $300,000, less than a contested state house race in Oregon. Chisholm spoke often about the discrimination she faced during her campaign. She didn't make it through the primary, got about 3% of the vote. Yet she remains one of the most remembered presidential primary candidates of all time. Today, back in the day, January 25th, 1996, Billy Bailey, the last person to be executed by hanging in the United States, was hanged in Smyrna, Delaware. In 1980, he was convicted for murder of Gilbert and Clara Lambertson in their home after he robbed a convenience store at gunpoint. He was sentenced to execution by lethal injection, but instead he chose to be hanged. His quote, I'm not going to let them put me to sleep. In 2016, the state of Delaware found executions to be unconstitutional. And just a few days ago, the Trump administration carried out 13 federal executions after a 17-year moratorium. President Joe Biden is now getting pressure to commute the sentences of all 49 people who are still on federal death row. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Mel Gertov, a professor of political science at PSU, about President Biden's foreign policy agenda. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The Oregon legislative session has started. They gaveled in Thursday morning amid calls to work together and recognize multiple crises at once. The crises they'll be addressing will include racial justice, the wildfires from last summer, probably not the last ones we'll ever have, the significant economic hardship facing small businesses and human beings, and the pandemic. One topic, of course, that led Republicans to flee the state to Idaho, etc., was cap and trade. Meredith Connolly of Climate Solutions told KTU the Oregon legislature hasn't passed a major climate bill in five years now. We hope the magnitude of that and responsibility is recognized. One of the questions facing the legislature is when will the building open up? Right now, the ground floor windows are covered by wooden boards. This will be Oregon's most diverse legislature ever. Legislative session is slated for 160 days. Let's hope everybody stays healthy during that time. We will be covering the BIPOC caucus agenda, addressing criminal justice, police accountability, and a host of other issues. This will also be the session for redistricting. Every 10 years, new census data comes in, and the legislature has to draw the lines. The decisions of those boundary lines impact which party holds power. Also, one big question is, what's going to happen with Oregon's 6th congressional seat? If the legislature can't pass a redistricting plan, it goes to the Secretary of State's office. But with Democrats controlling both chambers of legislature, the guest is here, sports fans, they will reach agreement on a set of lines. And then the question is, will there be a court challenge? What will happen to that court challenge? 
Floyd Brzezinski has introduced a bill that would dismantle many of the mandatory minimum sentences under Measure 11. It would make sentences presumptive, but allow a judge to revise them up or down depending on the circumstances. It would also allow prisoners convicted of most Measure 11 crimes to get out for good behavior. Another big issue is going to be campaign finance limits. Measure 107 passed, ensured the state's constitution, specifically allows campaign finance limits. And now the legislature got to decide what those limits might be. The budget will be a big issue. The budget process starts with the governor's budget. Kate Brown introduced her $25.6 billion budget in December. Cuts included closing three state prisons, cutting money paid to hospitals who serve Medicaid recipients, and flattening funding for universities. New revenue forecasts in February and May will impact the budget, and additional federal aid might impact it as well. And there'll be discussions about vaccine requirements. A big debate in the 2019 session was a bill that would have required children without a qualifying medical exemption to be vaccinated in order to attend school. Senate Majority Leader Rob Wagner intends to pass Senate Bill 254 this session. His quote, there's science and then there's fiction. At this point, by the way, Senate Bill 254 would not mandate a shot for COVID-19. That could change. The Oregon Health Authority adds the virus to the list of required vaccines. Here's what housing activists are looking towards in the Oregon legislative session. Before the pandemic, the state legislature was planning on taking serious steps to address Oregon's homelessness crisis. Efforts to create new shelters and more funding for homeless services were diverted by the pandemic. As the legislature begins its first session of 2021, the Oregon Housing Alliance, along with other housing advocates, are looking to refocus on homelessness. December's special session successfully extended the eviction moratorium to June 30, 2021. Legislators also put $200 million towards compensating landlords and renter assistance. But these measures don't fully address the issues, according to tenant advocates. Some things that they're asking the state legislatures for include the following. Cancel all rent and rent debt and extend the eviction and foreclosure moratorium for the rest of the pandemic. Suspend mortgage payments for vulnerable homeowners and small landlords. And increase safe housing for people experiencing housing instability. In line with the priorities of the Oregon Housing Alliance, the legislature's BIPOC caucus is pushing two bills which would provide house tax credit for farm owners and address racial disparities in home ownership. The downtown Apple store is giving its mural to Don't Shoot PDX. Earlier this summer, during the Black Lives Matter protests downtown, a mural of George Floyd was painted on plywood barricades outside the Apple store. The mural was painted by artist Emma Berger. As the protests continued, more artists added to the mural, turning the side of the store into a symbol of that movement. Last Friday, Apple announced that it was giving the painted plywood of the Portland nonprofit Don't Shoot PDX for future preservation. The organization hasn't announced any plans for the mural, but they're encouraging artists who have contributed to it to reach out through the website don'tshootpdx.org. And now your daily dose of data. On January 24th, the Oregon Health Authority reported 582 new cases of COVID-19. There have now been 138,168 reported cases in Oregon. Three new deaths were reported as well. Our death total is now 1,880. A total of 300,662 first and second doses of the vaccine have been administered in Oregon. 14,755 new doses were added to the state's registry on Sunday. 
Inauguration Day protests in Portland included smashed windows, Molotov cocktails, and police surveillance. Austin Trask was arrested Inauguration Day after being suspected of smashing the windows of the Democratic Party of Oregon headquarters. After the arrest, police claimed to have found four Molotov cocktails leaking gasoline into his backpack. Fourteen people were arrested. Mike Schmidt, our district attorney, says he's going to pursue charges against four of those. The protests were called J-20 demonstrations, meant to be a protest against government authority. According to reports by the Oregonian, the protest was disorganized and not very well attended, although they broke some windows. In contrast to more robust Black Lives Matter protests this summer. Mayor Wheeler is asking the Oregon legislature to give the police new tools to track suspected vandals. Note, though, in this case, police use surveillance footage to identify vandals relatively handily. Governor Brown clarified the vaccination timeline on Friday. At her weekly COVID press briefing, Brown laid out her proposed timeline and defended her plans to prioritize teachers. Brown had teachers and students join her remotely to comment on their experiences with remote learning. Brown has faced criticism for her choice to put school employees ahead of senior citizens in line for the vaccine. According to Brown, seniors 80 and older will be eligible for the vaccine starting February 7th. Vaccinations for the elderly and school worker group should be complete the week of May 2nd. According to public health officials, Oregon's cases have been trending downward. They are unsure if this trend will continue. 60 cats and dogs were delivered from Texas to the Portland area on Saturday through the ASPCA and the Oregon Humane Society. Oregon Humane Society is hoping to find these animals new homes through their Second Chance program. Everybody deserves a second chance, including cats and dogs. The program sends animals from areas with low demand for pet adoption to Portland and southwest Washington because we'll adopt any cat or any dog. Oregon Humane Society President and CEO Sharon Harmon said about the effort, and I'm quoting, this effort demonstrates how animal welfare organizations work together every day to save lives. To view the animals that are up for adoption, humans can check out OregonHumane.org slash adopt. And some good news to finish us out. A hiker was rescued after a 50-foot fall into the Columbia River Gorge. Hikers spotted the 43-year-old Milwaukee resident at the base of a cliff less than a mile from the Gorton Creek Trailhead. They saw that he was conscious but confused and possibly suffering from head injuries and hypothermia. He indicated that he had fallen down the cliff last Tuesday. After receiving a request for assistance at 5.30 p.m., a helicopter arrived at 6.45. He was brought to Portland's Legacy Emanuel Medical Center and is reportedly in stable condition. According to Search and Rescue Coordinator Deputy Chris Gerton, Quote, he was extremely fortunate. Had those hikers not located him, he had a very low chance of survival through the night. The rescue was a coordinated effort by the county sheriff, Coast Guard, Oregon State Police, Cascade Locks Fire Department, U.S. Forest Service, Hood River Crag Rats, and Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue. And that's today's, today's Quick 6, 6, local, 6 rundown. local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next is our interview with Mel Gertoff, a professor of political science at Portland State. Professor Gertoff joined Joe Smith and Julia Oppenheimer to discuss what foreign policy might look like in the Biden era. Here are Professor Gertoff, Joe Smith, and Julia Oppenheimer. As President Biden enters office, we are awash with domestic issues. But how will his administration tackle foreign policy? We are joined now by Mel Gertoff, professor of political science at PSU. Good morning, Mel. Good morning. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. And something is very interesting. 
what one of the historically historically many presidents have come in wanting to talk about domestic stuff and suddenly decided discovering that their domestic policies are are put on the back burner because international takes takes effect and that easily could happen with president biden and doctor first tell us just a little bit about yourself how you happened how how you happened to become a professor of political science at PSU with expertise in the foreign policy area. Well, uh, I started my career, I guess, as a an, an American history major, actually, uh, back east uh, at Columbia University, and um, for some strange reason got uh, quite caught up in American foreign policy in Asia, and that led me to... Uh, an expertise on uh, China and including the language and uh, that took me to Taiwan for advanced language training and then I was hired by the RAND Corporation in uh, Santa Monica, California and that's that's what got me to the West Coast and from there uh, after a long uh, period at uh, University of California Riverside I made it to Portland and um, now I'm I'm retired and living about three hours southwest of there in a little place called, <laughs> if you can believe it, uh, Deadwood. I doubt that you've heard of it. Um, but uh, I continued to write a blog and uh, and to write on foreign policy. And my latest book, which came out uh, last summer, um, is on Trump's foreign policy called America in Retreat, uh, which I think is um, a good title for what has happen now with Joe Biden, because I think uh, the restoration of America in the world is what uh, Biden is aiming at. Your writing on the subject of Biden's foreign policies appears on Catterpunch and elsewhere online. And one of the issues you raised was that several of his appointees have strong corporate and foreign ties. How do you see the biases of his administration affecting his foreign policy? Well, I think it's uh, fairly typical of people who are um, at the top. I mean, that was true in every other administration, uh, Democrat or Republican. Uh, these folks almost invariably have uh, have corporate, either corporate backgrounds or or become members of boards of directors of corporations. And um, and what that ine- inevitably seems to mean is that there's a bias in favor of um, multinational corporations doing business abroad which uh, certainly includes uh, all kinds of tax advantages. Um, It means that uh, trade deals are going to work in favor of of corporations and uh, less so in favor of worker rights, worker uh, safety. Um, And uh, so that's that's where where things uh, almost inevitably seem to go. And although um, in the case of Biden, you have, unlike uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy advisors, some real expertise, uh, deep professionalism and all that, still uh, the bias is built into the system. That that bias is interesting, and of course there's, there is always an assumption, I think, that if you've been on the board of a corporation that you're going to come with a bias towards that corporation. But, but I, I have a question about that, and let me give you a little background for that. When I was district attorney, I noticed when former district attorneys were appointed to the bench to become judges, and when former 
defense attorneys, especially attorneys who had worked uh, as uh, pro bono, as, as providing providing service for destitute defendants. And there was a correlation between prosecutors being relatively lenient on sentencing and between former defense lawyers being pretty tough. And I suspected that that was because those defense lawyers had a pretty good picture of just how bad some of those defendants were. And I wondered if maybe some of those folks who come off corporate boards sometimes had to swallow hard seeing the corporation doing things that they, it shouldn't, and therefore that that might be a good thing for them to have that background. What are your thoughts? Well, I think uh, that can certainly happen uh, if their values are in the right place, you know. Um, uh, I think certainly uh, from what I've read and, and heard of a number of uh, Biden's appointees, um, starting with people like uh, Jake Sullivan and uh, and Blinken, um, that these are people with a heart, uh, that they're, they're certainly well aware of uh, the enormous gaps between rich and poor around the world. And uh, the question, you know, really becomes, well, what happens to those values in the, con- in the bureaucratic context of decision-making? Uh, and it's, it's easy for those values to get lost in the shuffle of, uh, of debate within an, an administration. Uh, I've seen it happen a thousand times. Uh, and um, we, we'll just have to see, you know, um, uh, all, the, all, all the expertise in the world as I wrote uh, for the piece that you mentioned, um, can uh, go by the wayside when confronted with, with reality. Uh, you know, just a, one, one among many examples that, uh, of, a, of a challenge that Biden will have to deal with pretty soon is the situation in Yemen, where you have a terrible destitution um, in, a, in a situation in which the United States has been providing very substantial logistical help to Saudi Arabia and and the the Yemeni people are being uh, and I'm talking about civilians not those who are involved in armed revolt uh, are are being uh, driven to the to the very edge uh, when it comes to uh, to the ability to survive and um, in that context uh, you know one might think that uh, people with a heart would see that the United States needs to stop its assistance to Saudi Arabia and totally reevaluate its policy uh, for the for the benefit of innocent people um, but will that happen uh, well we'll just have to see but it just uh, suggests the kinds of challenges that uh, uh, decision makers will corporate from corporate or any other background will have to face uh, and that of course comes uh, it, it, at the bottom fairly bottom of a list of other things that Biden is going to have to pay attention to uh, on the domestic front. The the Yemeni thing is is a real conundrum for me. Uh, and I'm wondering your thoughts. There are so many international conflicts where there isn't a good side where where you really don't 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 see either side as a good side. Is that one of the situations in, in Yemen where there really is is no good side between the rebels and the, the ins and the outs? Uh, probably so. Probably so. Uh, there's, it, yeah, it's hard to, to identify uh, with, with any one side. 
and thus the the it, it would seem to me, and I'm, although I don't speak as a, as a Middle East expert, but just logically, it would seem to me that uh, what the United States needs to get behind is uh, a a a strong ceasefire and uh, a a negotiated format uh, that would uh, have to involve both uh, the rebels and the and the government, such as it is. Uh, as well as the outside players. Uh, I mean, the, the most important thing that the United States can do is to broker a nonviolent uh, solution to this uh, situation. Uh, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's simply immoral and irresponsible to be providing arms uh, or logistical help uh, to any, any one side in that situation. Now, here's where also uh, uh, you, you bring in the, uh, the Iranian element, which is absolutely crucial since Iran uh, has been supportive of the Houthi uh, rebels. And that, in turn, takes you back to the United States, presumably returning to the uh, nuclear talks uh, with Iran, but in a different context in which uh, the Yemeni situation could be brought in as part of a larger effort to engage Iran. And I see where, where I see that where the Iranian leader has publicly invited Biden to rejoin to re, re, to to revive the deal. Yes, and uh, and I think that's a very positive sign. And uh, I, and of course, uh, that statement is in response to many that have been made uh, earlier by Biden and his uh, and his advisors that the United States is very. Uh, determined to return to the uh, nuclear agreement, uh, although there will be, I think, probably new conditions uh, for uh, for the uh, resumption of talks. But, but to me, uh, that nuclear agreement, going back, of course, to Obama's time, was really a, an opportunity to expand the agenda from uh, from the nuclear uh, weapons themselves and and research and development and all that to the much larger agenda between the United States and Iran, which would involve really uh, a Middle East peace. Uh, of course, the Israelis under Netanyahu have been uh, very much opposed to that and are very fearful of where uh, Biden might take things with Iran. Well, that's too bad. Uh, the, I think Iran is an essential element in any kind of negotiated uh, solution to, to the problem of uh, the militarization of Middle East affairs. And something, something that Biden might be able to do would be to say, okay, you, you want us to revive the deal. Let's, one of the things, let's, let's tack five years onto the end of it, which, would, which would, would be a really nice thing to have. Biden, Trump, and Obama before them all have favored Israel in Middle East plans. Is there anything really changing here? Should Americans be critical of the presidential office continued ties to Israel through throughout the different administrations? Well, here again, uh, we need to see uh, what, if whether or not uh, Biden uh, opens up a new chapter in U.S.-Israeli relations. Uh, personally, I think I think he should. And actually, at the very end of the Obama administration, I was struck by uh, some some possible changes that were in the wind. Of course, it came at the end and therefore couldn't be implemented. But I recall in particular uh, a speech that John Kerry made as Secretary of State, which was quite critical of Israel, uh, pointing out in, uh, specifically that Israel has to choose between uh, being a Jewish state and a democracy. 
and um, and at the same time, was the United States was also distancing itself from Saudi Arabia. Uh, of course, all those uh, elements changed dramatically under Trump, and now need to be changed. I hope uh, again. Uh, but I think uh, I think Biden is likely to put some certainly put some distance uh, between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Uh, how far he's willing to go, um, you know, with with Israel, uh, it's the it's the usual problem of uh, uh, of having to face uh, con- so much pro-Israel support around the country, but especially in Congress. Um, but I am hopeful that uh, the the United States will follow the lead of uh, well, for example, Bernie Sanders. Uh, who talked about a a more even-handed policy as between the Palestinians and the Israelis, because you have a terrible uh, and always combustible situation there, so long as as U.S. policy toward Israel remains so awfully uh, one-sided. Following up on that, do you see whether or not uh, domestic issues might or even should limit the budget for foreign aid, military, and so on? Well, on the military side, it certainly should. Um, foreign aid, uh, I, you know, which has been brought to very low levels uh, by the Trump people, uh, is especially, I mean, talking about economic aid, not military aid, uh, really needs to be revved up in, in a number of places. But on the military side, uh, there's always room, uh, and in, in the case of the U.S. budget, uh, <laughs> more room than normal uh, for, for cuts. Uh, you know, we're all quite familiar with the how bloated the military budget is. Uh, you know, larger than than military spending for for the next uh, ten or twelve countries combined, and that includes China. Uh, and so, uh, a move a movement in the budget from from one line away from the military to a number of other lines, including foreign economic aid, would be a very wise thing. And I would be surprised if that did not happen uh, in the in the uh, Biden State Department. In your article uh, in the L.A. Progressive, you say there are concerns that, quote, Biden's band of progressive idealists will engage in a costly and misguided crusade for democracy and social justice. Some people would say that Biden and many of his cabinet members have a record of imperialistic practices disguised as progressive policies. What are your specifically the concerns coming from in as we move into 2021? Well, what I was trying to suggest there, you know, looking back at American foreign policy since uh, the end of World War II, is that um, all too frequently, and of course the, the most notable example would be Vietnam, uh, liberal at liberal administrations have engaged in what is sometimes called liberal interventionism. Uh, always with the presumed best of intentions, uh, democracy, freedom, and, and support for human rights, and so on, uh, all worthy causes in the abstract, but ones which get get us into deep trouble uh, when we try to uh, to manipulate politics uh, abroad. And although I don't have any particular candidates at the moment, um, uh, I think it's it's a da- what I was trying to point to in that article is the ever-present danger that in a liberal administration, uh, these um, these otherwise you know very professional and deep-thinking uh, strategists around Biden uh, may get tempted by situations which uh, may not even exist right now, uh, at least uh, right before our eyes, 
And so uh, we have to be uh, very careful about notions of building democracy everywhere or, um, or trying uh, a little too hard to, to promote uh, human rights. I mean, those are all worthy ideas. But, um, and, of course, <laughs> we have our own problems to deal with first uh, in, in those areas. But I do think liberal interventionism is, uh, is a constant uh, concern. Vietnam, of course, was the classic example of that. I remember I was at a, I was at a function in D.C. one night and, and was visiting with my spouse's boss, Ernest Greening, senator from Alaska. And, and I said to him, Senator, the thing that puzzles me is, this, is these hugely bright people down there. This was you know, the Secretary of Defense and all really, really smart people. How can they be so wrong on something? And he said, Joe, I just don't understand it. Yeah, well, it's that uh, crusading notion that um, seeps into the bureaucracy uh, and uh, can really infect uh, people. You know, it's it's the phenomenon sometimes called groupthink, uh, which um, may not exist, uh, uh, that, that psychological uh uh, consensus that suddenly develops uh, even among people who <clears throat> individually may may um, despair of uh, of getting involved in deeply in other countries' affairs, but then as a group suddenly make the idea of crusade seem like a very responsible thing to do. And of course, Vietnam, which I was very deeply involved in when I was with the Rand Corporation and involved with the Pentagon Papers, uh, I'm all too aware of. This has been a fascinating conversation, Professor Gertoff. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find your work? Uh, my blog is at uh, https uh, colon b- uh, backslash um, com. Simple as that, com. And it's called uh, In the Human Interest. Well, uh, and that's so Gertoff with a V, folks. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> he is a V. Doctor, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Really appreciate your interest. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dr. Gertoff for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving your five-star review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.